Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by Astrid Edwards. We are here for Future Women, thanks to Hachette Publishing. Astrid, today our theme is yesterday, just to confuse people. This season we're looking at moments in time and how we understand time through literature and the recording of history and non-fiction. How do you revisit the past in books. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time, Jam. This is, I think this might be one of my favourite topics for this season. You know, there's the old trite saying, whoever doesn't know their history is condemned to repeat it. I mean, you know, it always matters. And I enjoy books and stories that firstly remind me of things that happened in the past that now influence me. But also I love finding out stuff I didn't know. Like, it's just, it's an entry into a different world. It might be an entry into a world that my grandmother's lived in. And obviously that's not my experience, but I can, I can understand them more a little bit by knowing their own experience. What about you? I think I'm similar. I'm not someone generally who reads a lot of nonfiction based history, but I really do enjoy reading fiction, particularly literary fiction that is set in a particular place and time where the people and the characters that I'm reading about are invented or very loosely based on real people, but their story is invented. But the context in which they live is historically accurate. I think if I kind of cast my mind back over my reading life, those are some of my favourite books. And the one that immediately comes to mind is back in season one, we did Min Jin Lee's Pachinko, which was about Korean Japanese people from World War One right through until the early 1990s, I think is where that book finally drops off. It's a real sort of intergenerational saga. But it was about a group of people's experience of history that I was completely unfamiliar with before reading that book. And when I put it down, I went racing off to the internet to find out more. And I think that's the power of a well-told story. It is the power of a well-told story, but also I feel like I feel my present. I feel today is very uncertain. You know, we have a pandemic and there's international politics and domestic politics and everything feels a bit, everything feels like it is changing. And we aren't the first people. We aren't the first generation. We aren't the first bunch of readers to experience heaps of change and to experience change that maybe we don't like or that scares us. And I, I genuinely find comfort in reading books about history, whether they are nonfiction or fiction, because it is a reminder of you know, how we, what we might do to get out of the mess we're in, but also that people have gotten through previous bad times. And I genuinely find that intellectually and emotionally comforting. I wonder what you think about the gendered nature of commercial history books, because For so long, history has been written by men about the great 
brave achievements of men and while I think that's starting to change you still see every Father's Day and every Christmas you know those kind of brick doorstop books often written by Peter Fitzsimons. Peter Fitzsimons excellent writer but does crank out a lot of history books that come out at that time and again they're very much marketed to men these sort of historically accurate chronicles of the experiences of men and I think we see that less of women do you think the ledger is is being evened out when it comes to women's narratives and in history? I have so many answers to this. Look, I despise those Father's Day and Mother's Day lists. Absolutely despise them. If I see a book on either one of those tables or stacks in a bookstore, there is a large chunk of my psyche that says, never buy that book, never read that book, do not give it to anyone, which is really <laughs> unfair to the writers of those books, but I despise the marketing. Moving along from my issue with Father's Day and Mother's Day marketing, I don't believe that women have been represented very well in anything that has been written about history. A quick aside, I studied Latin for 11 years, which is basically like studying the origins of the patriarchy. And I desperately love many, many things about history. And I love the privileged position that I had and the the beauty that I got to experience by studying a world that influenced ours two millennia ago. But all of the texts, most of my teachers, all of the narratives that had been passed down for 2000 years, literally to my little classroom with the four of us that were studying, were all written by men and about men and there were no females in history. And there is now, after I have left uni, this is, you know, literally happening in the 21st century. Women are starting to reclaim that kind of history. And uh, I would recommend anybody who is interested follow the works of Mary Beard, one of the most prominent female classicists in the world who is trying to reclaim this part of Western history and find the female voices. But I use that as an example to say this has been happening forever. Women are always damn left out. And that's just offensive on so many levels and our listeners will know why but women did a lot of the work women did a lot of the the great things that helped people women did a lot of the forgotten things that literally kept people alive on a day-to-day basis and also women did a lot of the bad things and that should be recognized too i almost feel like we should reclaim the bad women of the past as much as all of the great unsung women of the past and to that end, for an Australian context, I really recommend the work of Claire Wright, who is an Australian historian whose work focuses largely on women. But of course, Astrid, it's not just women who have been forgotten in the pages of history. History is generally written by the victors and not the victims. And let's face it, the victors aren't just men. They have been wealthy white men mostly. Exactly. We know that, for example, First Nation stories have been missing from the mainstream Australian canon for most of our history because they weren't considered important during and after the time of invasion. I like to think that that is being corrected now, that it is actively being corrected by some of the remarkable First Nations writers that we have. But the sad reality is there is very little first-person testimony of that time from First Nations people because most were slaughtered before they had the chance to pass down that history orally. And I feel really grateful that, that we have any remaining testimony today. Absolutely. And, you know, in addition to that, 
testimony that has been passed down has often been deliberately not believed or deliberately marginalised by, you know, the powers that be. And also, don't forget, this is part of Australia's history, the idea of language erasure. So people can't remember the past and use that to power their future. And the idea of separating children so they can't learn language and know their own history to drive their future. This is the impacts of that are still being felt today in Australia. And I'm so very glad that this week we got to speak to Anita Heiss about her latest work and her learning of language. That's coming up in our next episode of Anonymous Was a Woman that will drop on Thursday. But today, let us crack on with our two books that are up for discussion. Hamilton, The Revolution by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jeremy Carter and The Husband Poisoner, Suburban Women Who Killed in Post-World War II Sydney by Tanya Bretherton. All righty, Jamila, you are going to have to start at the beginning for me. I may be the only person in Australia who knows nothing about Hamilton the musical or this book, Hamilton the Revolution. Start from the beginning for me. I know nothing. My dear Astrid, you have come to the right place. So the book we are chatting about today is called Hamilton, The Revolution. It's by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is the man behind the music and the lyrics to the musical Hamilton, which is probably the most talked about modern musical I would say for at least 30 years. It's a beautiful book and it's very much made to be read as a companion to the musical itself, whether or not you're flicking through it before going to see the show or whether or not you're reading it afterwards to enhance your understanding of what you've just seen. So Hamilton was written and composed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It premiered off-Broadway about six years ago and a film version of it was recorded in 2016 with the original cast and that is now on Disney Plus for any of you who are interested in finding it. Astrid, it's an interesting sell. It is the story of one of the founding fathers of America, Alexander Hamilton, but it's a musical and... The story is not just about a revolution. The musical is in itself revolutionary. It uses hip-hop, rap, R&B as part of the musical, which is just styles of music we don't see in that traditional musical genre. It's incredibly inclusive. The entirety of the cast, bar the two British characters, are people of colour. And here in Australia we followed that casting expectation and to great acclaim already and to me this show and this beautiful book that depicts and unpacks the show with such rich detail are hugely significant because they tell the story of how America looked many many years ago but represented by how America looks today and Central to the show is an immigrant narrative because Alexander Hamilton migrated to the United States as a young orphan to start making his living and finding his own luck and became part of revolutionary America. So I'm a person who loves history and I am also a person who despises musicals. So this makes an interesting conversation for me. I feel highly qualified and utterly 
out of my depth even though I don't engage in musicals, this is a huge, huge deal. And I'm well aware that I am probably making myself look very foolish by not having any understanding of this musical. I know that it's sumptuous and that it has become famous and a thing. When I look at the book, I can see actual pictures, images of historical texts from America, but also I can see behind the scenes shots of the cast getting dressed for the musical and obviously shots of the live production. And I can see text of songs that are obviously performed in the musical. This is clearly a book for fans, right? I think so. I think primarily investing in this beautiful hard copy, which, as you say, has these behind the scene pictures, has historical drawings of the real people these characters are based on. Yes, this would be a really stunning gift to give to someone who loves this musical. But my son and I are going along to see the Australian version in a few weeks now and we're taking my parents and neither of them have seen it before they're not familiar with the music and so we made sure that they had a copy because it also serves as a really good introduction to the text and to me it is certainly for young people the ultimate example of a really layered text it is full of primary source material about who these people were who the characters really were and what they were like. It talks about the historical diversions that are captured in the musical. But at the same time, it also talks to us about the actors and the performers who are cast in the musical, them and their background, and why they think the show is so important and has such an impact on popular and political culture. There's one actor called David Diggs who plays two characters, Lafayette in the first act and Thomas Jefferson in the second. And he says that now is a good time to examine the show as an example of how to hold your country accountable and to start demanding the change you need to see. So I think particularly in the midst of the power of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States or the advocation for more rights by dreamers and immigrants or campaigns to stop violence against women and to seek equality. There are so many social justice causes that are defining America right now and many of those causes are defining the world. I think the American people initially got carried away with this story of Hamilton because it's the story of a guy who came from nothing, who had big dreams and passion and courage and didn't mince words in the way we associate with politicians today, didn't have his set lines, said things that were unpopular but powerful and left a legacy. And I think just as that has really resonated with Americans, it's now resonating across the world and I think it really speaks to Australians as well. So let's explore that. It speaks to Australians. This is American history and American pop culture, both of which clearly have always influenced Australian society. But putting aside the pop culture element, why is American history cool for an Australian audience, particularly a younger audience now? I think it's the reinterpretation because it doesn't feel old-fashioned. I remember when I was at high school, I had this one history teacher who was incredible and set us an assignment where 
over the course of the year, we each had to run a 90-minute lesson. And our job was to bring a period of history of our choosing to life for the rest of our class. And we could do it in any way we wanted, but we had 90 minutes and we had the whole year to prepare. And I remember those snatches of history that my classmates either acted out or danced out or wrote music about or made sculptures of, whatever it might be. I remember them better than anything else I read at school. And I think that same principle applies here with what Lin-Manuel Miranda and his team have done with Hamilton. It is like nothing you've seen before. It is like a musical on speed because it's got electricity and soul and heart to it and you have this huge group of characters who are beautiful singers and dancers but also actors and they're all people of colour standing up telling the story of a country that used to call them slaves. I just think the power of that resonates no matter who you are and no matter where in the world you live. Plus it's just catchy. It's just good, catchy tunes you can't stop singing and incredibly clever lyrics. Astrid, we now take a very different historical turn. You are bringing a book by Tanya Bretherton called The Husband Poisoner, Suburban Women Who Killed in Post-World War II Sydney. Should your husband be worried? Uh, My husband should not be worried, but I know he was. He works in radio and they discussed the fact that this was the book on my bedside table and I believe he is now mortally embarrassed. This is not normally the kind of book that I would bring to the podcast, but this book actually thrills me. And a little story. When I saw the title, The Husband Poisoner, Suburban Women Who Killed in Post-World War II Sydney, I actually said to my husband, I wonder how many pages in until they mention Balmain. Now, I grew up in Balmain, my father grew up in Balmain, my grandmother and my great-grandmother moved there when she was very young. And Balmain and all of the suburbs around it, Roselle, Lilyfield, Surrey Hills, Newtown, Glebe, Redfern, were for many years some of the most poverty-stricken and dangerous inner-city suburbs in Australia and not even working class, working poor and poverty was the norm. And I grew up with these stories from my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And I picked this up thinking, yes, someone has finally written about the women of that time who had such a difficult life and obviously made some bad decisions. But the women who never get written into the histories of Sydney and New South Wales... Sydney and New South Wales are so renowned for corrupt cops and criminals and both of those all centred on the inner city suburbs that I mentioned before and all the women get left out and that really makes me mad. So Astrid, set the scene for us. If I pick up a copy of this book, particularly if I'm someone who currently lives or has lived around that part of Sydney, I mean... Today, it's far from what you've just described. In fact, it's quite beautiful. You're talking about some really expensive suburbs. You'd be lucky to find a house for less than a million dollars in any of those suburbs, I imagine. What should we expect picking up this book? What kind of read are we in for? This is a really easy read. And by easy, I mean, you know, it's written chronologically and you just go through the stories of these two women and all of their kind of friends and family and contacts who they 
kind of popped off a few of them on the way, right? And it leads into, it dovetails into, you're laughing at me, but this is a serious discussion. <laughs> I enjoyed the popped off a few of them, sorry. Look, they did. And they did it with Bonox, which was, you know, the poor kind of meal substitute, basically kind of, you know, you put it in hot water when you couldn't afford anything else and off their husbands and some others, right? And it does dovetail in the end towards kind of the, the corrupt cops that have been so prevalent in Sydney's history. But this is very much a story of women. Now, these women were murderers and they clearly are criminals, right? In no way does this book, uh, like, you know, this is not a glorification of murder. However, it is placing what probably happened quite a lot in historical context that has been, you know, evidenced through the courts. And it's a real comment on class and gentrification. So as you said, you know, those suburbs are really, really wealthy now, but that has literally happened in the last 15, 20 years. It's happened within my lifetime. It was working poor and you were either, you couldn't even have the luxury of being a housewife. No family was wealthy enough to have a housewife. You were out there scrambling for cash in any way, shape or form. And the men had often come home from the war and were dealing with what we now would call post-traumatic stress disorder or other physical wounds. Domestic violence and domestic abuse were everywhere and common and known. Kids had no food, didn't necessarily have clothes to go to school. There was no work. If you got divorced, no one in the street would talk to you. Like this is in living memory. And, you know, some women took their own terrible life circumstances into their own hands and got caught for it. And really interesting thing here is some of these men, because it took them a while to die, were actually put in hospital after they had been poisoned by their, their wives. And they were put in Callum Park Hospital. It is renowned as one of the worst hospitals for psychiatric care that Australia has managed to produce. It's in Roselle. And, you know, nowadays people in very expensive athleisure wear walk their very expensive designer dogs around the grounds of Callum Park. But again, in living history, it was an operating hospital with a really dark history. So I really recommend this book as a reminder of what on earth some of the very expensive suburbs in Sydney were doing in our recent history. Can I ask Astrid, as someone who grew up in that area, was it a pleasant experience reading the book or was it more of a distressing experience? Because I imagine you were reading about a lot of places and, you know, notable locations that are really familiar to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's the Unity Hotel, which is the site of my worst hangover in my life, but also <laughs> the Balmain pub where the Labour Party was founded. And, you know, that gets a mention. Along with Callum Park, there's all the public schools, all of the, the famous alumni that come from the area. It was, I don't know how to say it. Like I grew up listening to my nan and all of her friends reflect on the really harsh life they had. And, you know, the Colgate factory where soap and toothpaste was made is in the area. And most of my nan's friends were missing digits on their fingers because they had deliberately cut them off to get the small payout to keep their families going. So, you know, like I read this book half expecting to see a name of a woman that I might have, you know, my nan might have known. So it's not a distressing book. It's a book of female criminals, but 
against a backdrop of a time when there was no social security, there was no support, you couldn't get divorced. If you were getting beaten up at home, you damn well had to accept it or kill the guy. And that is horrendous, right? Horrendous. But some women chose to. And I don't think that we should forget how bad it was and maybe reflect on how far we've come in such a short space of time. After a musical and a book about women killing their husbands, it's time for us to recommend something else for the readers in case neither of those particularly float your boat. We're both recommending books that take us down memory lane or perhaps evoke memories of yesterday or even take us to times well before we were born. Astrid, what would you like to recommend? Well, I'm staying with my theme of uh, women being accused of killing men, I would like to recommend the historical fiction work Burial Riots by Hannah Kent. Have you read it? I have. Really? Do you and I end up on the same page? But I read this one when it first came out. Yeah, this is a relatively old one. This came out in 2014. Hannah Kent was shortlisted for the Seller Prize and the International Bailey's Women Prize for Fiction. It was her first novel and it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful read, regardless of the subject matter. It's actually set in 1829 in Northern Ireland and our main character, our female protagonist, Agnes Magnus' daughter, is condemned to death for her part in a murder. And this is really going into history obviously but gender and class and you know what people don't let women do and Hannah Kent's prose is just beautiful this is a really really deep and fulfilling fiction read. I am bringing another fiction set against a backdrop of history today and again one that was published well before the two books we were talking about earlier in the podcast. Astrid, have you read Wild Swan's Three Daughters of China? Many, many years ago and it's actually on one of my to-be-read piles to read again. I read this one when I was at university. It was one of those books I remember when I was even younger looking at on my mother's bookshelves and thinking, that's a big book. (laughs) Like it is a brick of a book, this one, a proper doorstop, but it is beautiful. It is the story of three Chinese women, three daughters of China, as the cover promises us, and it is three generations within the first family. It is an incredibly popular book. I believe it's sold more than 13 million copies now, and it is essentially a history of China told through the eyes of three individuals. So it is told by Jung Chang, who is the author. She writes first about her grandmother, who was given as a concubine to a warlord as a very, very young woman and experiences nightmarish cruelty. It is the story of her communist mother and father, indeed, and their bravery and attempt to survive during some of the most difficult days for Chinese people. And then it is the story of Jung herself and her experience of the later part of China's 20th century and how she is seeking to come to terms with the scope and severity of the trauma that her family has gone through. It is truly an epic read and it is one that you would never possibly... (laughs) 
read in one sitting. This is a book for when you've got a good month or so on your hands to dip in and out of and learn a whole lot about the history of China as well as these three incredible women. You mentioned that you found it on your mum's bookshelf. I also, back in the day, found it on my mum's bookshelf. And I think that is why it sold 13 million or whatnot copies. I think that might be true. It's so noticeable because it's just so big. You'll probably remember it, everyone, on a parent's bookshelf or another loved one's bookshelf from when you were younger. It's got a light green cover. It's got red and black writing on it. It's got Chinese characters down the side and Jung Chang's name, of course. It is a really memorable cover. And as it should be, because it's a really memorable book. that is about all we have time for on Anonymous Was a Woman today. We would like to thank Hachette Publishing again for supporting this season of Anonymous Was a Woman. Please reward them by buying all of their excellent books. We'd like to thank Bad Producer Productions and Future Women for making Anonymous Was a Woman a podcast for you to listen to for free twice every week. I'd like to thank Astrid for being a truly excellent co-host and the greatest reader I know. If you would like to hear more from us, particularly if you would like to make sure you get a little alert for our next episode, which is, of course, our interview with the remarkable Anita Heiss, please make sure that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's how you make sure you don't miss an episode. While you're there, please take the time to give us a rating and a review. It helps other people find Anonymous Was a Woman and a world with more readers in it is a better world. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.